Oh, I love this. Okay. Resumes matter, yes, but they matter a lot less than your reputation. The reputation always largely, significantly, exponentially outweighs a resume. Almost 20 years ago, our paths crossed in the sneaker world. And since then, we have been on a professional and personal journey together. We've made a lot of mistakes and had a lot of fun, and even a few wins along the way. Our goal is to share our experiences and insights so you don't have to make some of the same errors that we did. And in addition, we want to help you begin to think about things a little different. So join us as we unpack our unsolicited and sometimes polarizing views on business, faith, and family with questions that make you want to unfollow. AP, we have made it to the end of season one, episode 13, and I am really proud of you and I for making this happen. Yeah, this started off as like, I think just this crazy idea of yours. Hey, dude, you've been waiting 10 years to write a book. Let's do a podcast as a way to like reduce the friction. And now here we are 13 episodes later, got, you know, a body of work, a, a small yet growing audience and actually some really good feedback and some people that we've learned from as well. So it's been such a great journey already. Thank you for the push and I think, you know, the inspiration. I could have done it without well, you, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you've got a friend who is as talented and as creative and as smart, it's easy to see the value there. And I think it's just about like continuing to uncover that and share that with other people. So don't worry if you've enjoyed this first season, we're going to keep going, but we're actually going to change it up and do some small interludes in between now and the official season two. And so we'll, we'll continue to drop those. Like AP said last week, I, our lives have changed, right? So we're not commuting for an hour right now every day. And so we're going to work on putting together some content that's five or 10 minutes long. And that is great in between teaching the kids at home or, you know, uh, your next zoom meeting, those kind of things. And that's honestly where my life is at right now too. So, yeah, I know. I think, I think it's great snackable bite size, easy to pick up and it'll be a great opportunity to continue these discussions and a really cool format. So look, yeah, look out for that as well. But this 13th episode, what are we talking about tonight? DC, how, how are we going to end this first season? I would say that this is your moment to shine. This is the thing that you are the best at. And that is how do I start a job and end a job well? And along the way, how do I make myself more marketable? Ooh, no pressure. No pressure. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting journey because I think planning a career in any phase, right? It's like you don't know what you don't know. And then think as I look back, I can look back on 20 years or 20 plus years of interviews, jobs, promotions, uh, being asked to leave or asking people to leave. You know, I've been on every side of that equation. And I think, you know, I think there are some some tips, some principles, some learning. So my caveat all the time is, hey, I'll give you some uh, evidence. I don't have a whole lot of advice, but, you know, I think there are some things we can learn with how do you land the job you want? How do you leave the job you don't want? And how do you love the job you have at times? You know, and I, I think, as we go through this pandemic, I've spent probably the last part of better part of last month having so many conversations with colleagues, friends, and peers in the marketing industry about careers, whether it's people I mentor, whether it's people I respect and love who are leaders in organizations who are playing their next move in career. So I think there's a lot of um obviously there's a lot of uh unemployment and so there's people who are actually coming from a position of, hey, I need a job to make it. And there's also people who are actually 
COVID has actually forced people to take a look at like, what do I want to do best? How do I want to be used? And so I've even experienced that where it's actually been from more of a positive, proactive career planning uh, point of view as well. So yeah, let's let's get into career 101 with the master of mediocrity, Adrian Parker. <laughs> All right. So tell me about your first job. Do you remember, and, and I'm not talking about when you worked for Parker <laughs> Inc., you know, which was like all seven kids out there like, working <laughs> in the yard. But I, I'm talking about uh, the moment where you had to go to a job interview and you either got the job or you didn't get the job maybe. And, and talk about how awkward that was and what you take away from it. It was good. You know, I think the first job that wasn't related to call it like high school. So I had like an internship out of high school, but it was like based on the essay contest. So we won't count that. Let's kind of, hey, there is a job that they don't know who you are. You had to walk in, you had to apply, walk into a place and convince them that this, you know, this guy off the street pretty much was worthy of this job. So it was actually my, um, I think it was my junior year of college. I applied for an internship at this local uh, public relations firm in Tallahassee, Florida. It's called Hurley Communications Group. It was uh, in downtown at the time in Tallahassee. And I saw a flyer there looking for a, a paid internship, which I needed dearly because I had no money at the time. Uh, and I, I applied and I sent in my resume. They called me. I scheduled the interview. I remember walking in. This is old school. So this is like 20 years ago. So you walk in with your portfolio. So I had a, a leather portfolio of like you know, some PR campaigns, like some things I had just done and made up. And so okay. that's, and that's a learning that I would share with people later on is I walked in with work that wasn't necessarily professional level work, but it was an idea of what I could do. So I walked in with not only a resume, but also some ideas of some campaigns I had thought of some, just some, some creativity. And I sat in this office and at that time it was all women in the firm. And it was one guy who was a receptionist. And I interviewed with the entire team and I got the call two days later. They hired me. I think I got paid like four dollars an hour or something crazy. Hmm. But I remember being so scared. This is my first official like professional interview where I had to like dress up. I had to find the building, get there early, park my car. You know, you're, you're sweating. You're like, you, you don't know who yeah. they are. You don't know what to expect. And it's that mm-hmm. that agita of like trying to pitch somebody for a role that I thought I could do, but I had never done before was, you know, mm-hmm. it, was, it, was, it was a little stress inducing. Yeah. So when you moved forward in your career, were there things that you learned from, let's say that that's interview one, you know, and you've probably had 20 interviews or more in your career at this point. Was there anything that you learned from the, that interview that you've applied later on down the road? Like how did you get better at interviewing? Yeah, you know, I think there's no shortcut to getting better interviewing. You got to just do it. And so oftentimes, you know, when um, people are on the job hunt, it's easy to like put it all in that one interview. But there are times mm-hmm. when like, yeah, I've I've interviewed for things I didn't get. And, you know, I've interviewed for opportunities, especially in college, because coming out when I graduated, you know, I had a PR degree and a journalism background, but I was really interested in marketing. And so when I would go interview for a more of a business marketing role, I came in with all this creative stuff and they're kind of like, you know, like the, the CPG companies, you know, Kimberly Clark, Procter and Gamble, Unilever, like they knew I was creative, but they didn't know what to do with a creative guy in marketing. And so I got told no a lot um, as well. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the things I've learned for interviewing is interviewing is not a date. I think so many people mm-hmm. approach interviewing like it's a date. 
And a lot oftentimes what I said early in my career and what I hear now, oftentimes when people are interviewed is like, this job is perfect for me because, and this is the candidate saying, hey, this job is a fit for me because it fits my passion for X and I'm good at Y. And it's like, no, like, no, like, no, it's not like the job is good for you. It's like, hey, why are you good for the job? Like, how, like, bridge that gap. Make me understand what you bring to the table, what you bring yeah. uh, to the team or the offering. Not by it's a fit for you. Like, oh, I only live a mile away. And I mean, and so I've had candidates go on and on <laughs> about how this is like the perfect match for them. Like, it's a speed date. Hmm. No, I think if you approach it, not a date, right? It's an audition. Like, you've got to earn it. And you have an opportunity to unpack why you're why you're good for the team or the company. That's such a, a much more powerful position to come into. But obviously, yeah, be be curious, ask ask more questions than what you would expect. Make it a, a casual conversation. Over prepare, yeah. um, but always remember like it's two way. So not only are they interviewing you as a candidate, but like mm-hmm. I'm also as a candidate, I'm interviewing the company. So make sure they know that you know you, that there is some power. In that dynamic of making sure that hey, you're asking questions that you want to know, yeah. so that you you can assess uh, that fit as well. Absolutely. Um, so, if you don't mind, and you can be as <laughs> transparent or as non-transparent as you want to, what was the worst interview you ever oh, had? Oh yeah, uh, I'll never forget it. So I got a call. So I was in New Jersey at the time. I think I was the. I can't remember if I was at Foot Action or if I was at Foot Locker at the time. So I was probably like an advertising manager. And manager level, probably about 23, 24 age. And I got a call to interview at uh, Toys R Us, which is funny because I think then Toys R Us like go out of business recently. So it was Toys R Us. They had an office in Jersey. And I had prepared to interview with like a director of marketing. And so and I kind of went in overconfident because, you know, I, I had put together a pretty good resume. I had some experiences. I had some wins under my belt. And so when I got the call for the interview, and I think I had applied online. So, you know, if you apply online and you make it through all the scans and the HR yeah. manager, you know you're coming in hot because mm-hmm. it's hard to get from a, a cold online applicant to an yeah. actual interview uh, with the corporate team. And I went in, and I think something happened where the director of marketing wasn't available. So I found myself sitting in front of the CMO of Toys R Us. This lady, I mean, she was like on it huge office overlooking like this force and i got like stage fright i forgot everything like it was the worst interview ever i couldn't remember my 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 career points my talking points my questions i mean i lost it all so it's it's because i was so i think i had prepared for a certain level and yeah something about being in front of her her office her her agency her you know, her stature just freaked me out. I, I can't explain it. It, it was inexplicable. Wow. It was the worst. I, I was, they never even called me back. <laughs> like they, they didn't even bother to say like, Hey, like you didn't get it. They were just like, yeah, that, that was bad. So that, that was a really bad interview. I underprepared and I got just, I got freaked out, man. It happened. It wow. can happen. It can happen. So what did you take away from that terrible interview? You know what? I think you always have to not only prepare, but always have talking points that are, not necessarily tied to what they're asking you. So, and it sounds weird. And what, what I've learned even in media training much later on in life is that, you know, think about a good interview with uh, media. It's not about answering questions. It's about landing quotes, right? So a good interview is not, I'm not answering questions from a, 
uh, a reporter or editor, I'm landing quotes. I want them to know this about my background, this about my career, here's why I'm here. And so you walk in with your four bullet points and that's it. And so from there, I, I can answer any question. Well, I didn't, I didn't have that. I went in just kind of thinking, eh, I got it. And they'll ask me some softball questions. So when she asked me questions, I didn't have it. So I, I think one thing I learned is always have your playbook, your script, for right. what you need to say. And you can easily pivot, you know, into that. But I think, too, I over-prepared my um, – I've learned to over-prepare some of the – it sounds weird, the small talk. You know, like, hey, hey, how you doing? Hey, you know, how'd you – you know, how's the weather? Or whatever that thing is. And a lot of oftentimes interviews start with that, like, five minutes of, like – getting to know you and you're already being judged. You're already being sized up. What are you wearing? Uh, did you pronounce the company right? Or are you on time? And so have, have a couple of stories in your head where you know it's going to tie back to, to something as well. So I, I've learned to have that script, uh, not make it about answering the question directly all the time, but have those predetermined, strong, prolific, uh, career-defining answers in my head so that when it's time to just kind of cock that back and, and you know, fire one off, I'm ready. I'm not trying to reload it. I've already got it. What was your worst interview moment ever? Well, first of all, let's just laugh at the fact that your worst interview ever was at Toys R Us. And then it was also <laughs> at the company that is no longer. So I think you're going to be okay. Yeah, yeah, I'll be all right. <laughs> um, my worst interview ever was probably at Under Armour. Um, and it wasn't actually the interview itself. It was post interview. And I'll go through that. So at the time we were at foot action, uh, you and I had been there probably about a year and a half, two years. And Johanna and I were actually engaged and getting married. And so at that time, Johanna was in Virginia and you and I were up in New Jersey working at Foot Action. And so I was trying to look at what was my next career move. And so it's really common, especially in a corporate world, for you to only be at your first job about 18 months. And I totally support that idea, right? I think a lot of us need to go get that big company experience early on because it really teaches you how to behave inside of a larger organism. Um, and it also like lets you know that, hey, you are on the bottom of the totem pole. So for all of you guys out there who are about to start your first job or career move, I wouldn't call it a risk, but like make the move and take that first big job at a large organization. So you can begin to understand maybe how the career that you want to chase after, right? Like how it operates on a big boy level. So that's a sidebar, but uh, you and I were out there kind of like looking for that next job and Under Armour was uh, about to go public. They had just moved to Fort McHenry in outside of Baltimore, Maryland. Um, and I was excited about it. You know, we had started to actually sell some Under Armour products at Foot Action at that time. And so I thought it just was a really good fit. Uh, they needed a graphic designer. That's what I was doing. So I went down and had a really good interview. I thought the interview went really well. Um, I connected really well with the guy that was interviewing me. Um, and I just felt really, really positive about it. But here's the thing. I wanted that job really bad, but more importantly than that, I had marriage coming up. So I had my wedding coming up. So there was a lot of pressure on me. So what happened was I started pressuring Under Armour to give me an answer. So instead of your traditional professional follow-ups, hey, how you doing? Just want to check in on that job, see you know what's next. 
I was more frequently doing that and I was pressuring them. Hey, I need a decision. Hey, I need a decision. Hey, I'm about to get married. So to your point earlier, I was talking about how the job was a good fit for me, right? That was the mistake. There would have been other ways to handle that follow-up that would have been much better. Send a gift and a card, you know, send uh, a very personalized type of thank you. You know, there would have been more subtle ways to do that rather than blasting out an email every two days about to the hiring manager about, hey, where are you guys at, right? You were a stalker. <laughs> I was. I really was. You know, I, I, I needed a decision. Like, I was stressed out because, you know, oh, hey, my that. future wife is saying, like, hey, where are we going to be? And so I really messed that up because I think, in hindsight, I would have landed that role successfully, and I think I would have done great there. But I was too pushy. Like, I just pushed and pushed and pushed. Now, in hindsight, I think everything has worked out great, but... And that was an interview that I really screwed up and I should have been better than that. I should have known better, but I let the pressure that I had on the outside affect how I, you know, followed up and, you know, really kind of showed up in, in their world. And I think that's a big takeaway. So if you're young and you're out there and you're getting ready to go to a job interview this week, know that there are a lot of other things happening in the day for that manager, director, vice president, or in your case, CMO, right? Besides interviewing the person coming in the door, right? They've had meetings. They've had other business decisions to make. Maybe they've had internal HR issues that day already. So your interview is not the biggest thing of their day. And I think that's the takeaway for me. I thought that I was the biggest thing of the day, right? And that's a really arrogant, narcissistic perspective. (laughs) But just know that when you come in that door for an interview, you're a guest in their house, And your job is to help them forget whatever else it was that was happening before, after, and focus on you. So you want to make it a really good experience and just know that you're not the only thing happening that day. Dude, do you know how much your Under Armour stock would be worth today? (laughs) (laughs) No. I think of it so often, man, about how early I would have been in on that. Do you know how many many, uh, commercial buildings you'd be flipping? Oh, anyway. You know, all happens for a reason. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So could you give us some insight? What's your perspective on a career versus a job? Yeah, I think the definitions make all the difference. And I say this because oftentimes we can get the um, words and the intent behind what we're really looking for tangled and we're chasing one, but we're actually pursuing it like with the tools or tactics of another. And so I'd say this, a job is just a paid position, right? I mean, you've probably been working since you were what, 12, 13. I've had jobs since I was like 12. I've, I've scrubbed toilets. I've served ice cream, not while scrubbing toilets. I've unloaded 18 wheeler (laughs) trucks. I've managed games at Six Flags. I mean, I have done the craziest jobs ever. It's a paid position. Think about it. A career is this though. A career is like, your occupation, right? Your career is a collection of experiences. And oftentimes they're undertaking for a significant period of your life, right? So job is a paid position. Career is like a series of of jobs. But here's here's where I'd add a third definition. It's vocation. So your vocation um, comes from a word called like vocal, vocation, Mm -hmm. calling, Right. So uh, vocation is like your summons, like mm-hmm. there's something inside of me that's like pulling me to, to do something. So I think oftentimes you think of your your career can be like, you know, a career is just a series of jobs. 
may or may not be your calling. It is okay to have a job that pays the bills. It may just feed you, put food on the table, but not fuel you. That is okay. And I know that is a blasphemous statement to say these days. Think about a generation ago. I mean, our parents spent decades in jobs that they may or may not have been fulfilled by, but they did it because they had to. But I'd say vocation, though, isn't dependent on your job, right? And so I think if you're born to write, you're born to create, you're born to manage or lead or produce, if you can do that in your job, great, 100%, do that in your occupation. But it's not necessarily dependent on it. Your your vacation is something you would do um, if you won the lottery. Your vacation is something you would do if you didn't have a job at all, you had to wake up and just do something. And, and so I think it's very helpful to know that, hey, it is a job pays the bills. A career is a collection of jobs. And vocation is like you're calling, hey, what I feel like I'm here to do. And be be okay being flexible in that. There will be times when sometimes, yeah, you're you're in it. You feel like this one role fits everything. It's paying your bills and it's it's fulfilling you, it's fueling you and feeding you. But there will be seasons in life, or you know, depending on how things change, where you might have a job and that will be okay um, as well. So yeah, I, I found that helpful. Um, I wish I knew that. 20 years ago, because I think there were times in my career um, where I thought I needed to be having have it everything, have everything, my meaning, my identity all wrapped into a role. And it's like, no, like do your work, do a good job, do it honorably, then go home. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then do whatever that thing is that you really want to do on the other side of that. Right. Exactly. So, I, I may have a different perspective than you on this. So I'd love to hear your perspective. Uh, I believe that people that work inside the same organization that I do can also work inside of other organizations um, or they can create side hustles for themselves or other business opportunities for themselves that are not locked into just the one relationship that we have inside of one organization. So what I mean by that is my team members at my day job at Moore Giles, I believe that they can have other occupations. I believe that they can work for other companies. I believe that they can perform other functions and volunteer and, you know, be a part of other things that are beyond the, the daily work at more Giles, because I believe that that is like you said, it's a relationship where they show up and, and perform a function and they receive, uh, certificates of gratitude, AKA money for doing that thing. Right. And that's an exchange. I don't believe that that has to be singular. Like if they want to go on and do other things, like I'm totally in support of that, you know, and we have multiple examples of that everywhere around me on a daily basis. If somebody at Patron wants to do that, how do you look at that? No, I I agree. I I think there are so many ways to have like complimentary opportunities, whether it's a side hustle, another revenue stream or just an interest, right? Whether it could be music, could be art. Um, you know, executive level, a lot of people will take on board seats or board yeah. positions where they're doing something. Like I say, it's a complimentary company. It's not necessarily uh, directly competing. Yeah. Where Or there are family businesses where you know, I remember it when I was into it. Uh, There's a lady named Amber. Um, her family owned a um, like a stand that would go to the State Fair of Texas. Right? You know, they would serve, you know, I think it was like frozen ice cream or, you know, you know, fried Oreo cookies, mm. or something like that, right? So, like, mm. for what is it like? Call it six to eight, eight weeks a year. Her job was helping them at the state fair, yeah. and it made really good money, right? Yeah. And, and so, but you know, by day she was 
a, a marketer, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I encourage it. I think it's great if you have the bandwidth and the opportunity to do that and it doesn't distract from your, your, your quote unquote core job. I think for so long, we always viewed it as, um, like it could be a threat, like, Oh, yeah. your, your time or attention are divided. But I think these days, um, we no longer have the illusion that our corporate jobs are as secure as they would have been a generation ago. And so now like, you almost should be planning whether or not you have a, another job or another side hustle, not that, but you actually do need some kind of financial, uh, call it footstool mm-hmm. so that when something moves, you don't fall flat. And so whether it's your savings, your investments that are throwing yeah. off some cash yeah. or it's just something else, like, you know, don't don't be the, the person that gets caught flat footed by a corporate downsizing under the illusion that your corporate job was the one that was supposed to take care of you when the reality is, you know, the priority is the shareholders. Yeah, that's great. I think for me now, I've come to the realization that um, there are certain limits to that at the same time. So I've limited the amount of boards that I sit on. Right now, I only sit on one board. Um, I'm currently the president of the Lynchburg Daily Bread, which is a soup kitchen here in Lynchburg. And it's something that I'm super passionate about because feeding people is something that everybody can get behind, but it's kind of like one of the most basic of human needs. And we have done a really good job of that here in Lynchburg. So pretty proud of that. Um, yeah, Joe and I have a family business. You know, we operate real estate. So we buy, sell, flip, develop, we have rental properties. It's kind of like the Calfee family business that, you know, when you were a kid, you were a part of, right? Like yeah. you were going around yeah. like cleaning up yards uh, with the Parker clan. So, you know, we've got that. And then just like other people, you know, we volunteer. Um, in fact, Joe and I were both college professors. Um, we both taught adjunct um, at several universities here in Lynchburg. And a lot of people say, well, like, how did you do that without having your master's or doctorate. Well, I'd yeah. also worked in marketing yeah. for 15 yeah. to 20 years at that point. So, you know, you get a pass as an adjunct professor. Um, and I think the students enjoyed it because we brought a lot to the table of real world experience that, man, a lot of the college professors don't have that real world experience. So, yeah, you're side hustle, man. You jobs on jobs on jobs, man. You got speaking of jobs on jobs on jobs today, when I put out the post of, Send me your questions for AP oh, yeah. um, that you would want to ask him. I got a handful of responses that I thought were really good. So I just want to read these directly. I'm just going to read the person's first name, but we're going to hold you accountable for whatever you say to these people. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm ready. Let's go. I would love to hear your honest responses to these honest questions. So first question comes from Joe. He asks, when should you or shouldn't you switch careers? Also, when should you stay the course in your current career when you're being pulled in different career directions? Oh, such a hard question because it's general. But let me kind of break it down to, I guess, decision principles I've used uh, in my career that I think are helpful. Uh, I guess we'll see another 10 years. So one thing is to think about, I think about career planning is almost like a game of poker. Mm. Right. And a good um, poker player, you know, they always count their chips so they know where they stand. But think about this. A good poker player doesn't play more than half the hands they're dealt. In mm-hmm. fact, a good winning, a good winner in poker also knows how to quit. So they've already calculated the odds of winning. They know when they should fold. And so one thing I did, this was probably about 10 years ago, I decided when I came into a role when I should leave it. So coming in your first like month on the job, 
and I, I wrote it out. This is, I remember I did it at Intuit. I said, hey, these are the three signs that I'm going to, I'm going to like let go of this job. One was I'm in the way. Like, hey, I'm no longer the guy. My background and skills are in the way. Two was, hey, I'm not a fit for the team. Or three, hey, I've done what they wanted me to do. Let me go find something else. And so I think it's really smart to think about your exit right as you're entering. Because oftentimes you get stuck in the day-to-day. It becomes an emotional decision. And so, yeah, take a step back on your best day of work, right? I mean, you're you're happiest, you know, when you're starting a job, you're excited. Think, Take a step back. Think about, hey, when would I know it's time uh, to leave? But also, I've always had this rule. I never run from a challenge, but I will explore an opportunity. So something's challenging at a job. That's not always an, uh, a sign to leave. Oftentimes, that's a sign to dig in. To, uh, to grow, to mature, to, to learn, right? And whether it's organizational, where it's political, whether it's cultural. Um, but hey, if, if there's an opportunity that grows and expands you, go to that. What I've seen, though, is when people make the mistake of running from a challenge at a job, a coworker, a team, a project, you end up with a cycle of just running away from projects. So I, I'd say think about your career as a hand of poker, uh, Decide going in when you think you should fold or when you should double down and always think about, hey, what is that next opportunity? I'd say because the roles that I've had for the last 10 years, I've had them as the first person ever. So they didn't exist before I got point. Yeah. Um, And so there's so many jobs that don't exist today that like me, like me and Daryl, our kids aren't doing jobs we're doing today. They're going to do jobs that are way beyond what we, we could think of. And so I'm a big fan of, especially in your 20s, testing and learning, trying some things. Don't be afraid to, to pivot a little bit, take on projects. So yeah, I, I would definitely encourage, you know, uh, you know, double down where you can, be focused. As you, but, you know, obviously if you're pursuing a career that takes a lot of professional development, if you want to be a doctor, I mean, there isn't a shortcut there. So you, you got to spend the 15 years there. But assuming you're in kind of a managerial knowledge working position, where it's, you know, sales and marketing is administration, finance. It's so important to get a, a breadth of experience to learn where you could add, add the most value. All right. Mark asks, do resume even matter in this market for a hiring manager? And does a resume get someone in for the interview? Um, and how important is the first impression or... Are we looking for more creative ways to get the manager's attention? Uh, basically, give me some resume tips. Oh, I love this. Okay. Resumes matter, yes, but they matter a lot less than your reputation. So reputation always largely, significantly, exponentially outweighs a resume. Okay, let's repeat that because I think that that's an important bullet point, right? So the takeaway is reputation is greater than resume. Yeah, all the time. I all mean, right. at, all the time. All right, like, so what does that mean? Close. What does that mean? So resume. Think about your resume as the movie trailer, right? Okay. So it's not the full film. The the you know the intent and the role of a movie trailer is to get enough interest so that somebody buys a ticket, they look up a review, they look at you know times of the theater, whatever. The movie trailer is just a little two minute snippet of a two hour film. So think about your resume as that. Okay. Right. And I think the challenge is most people don't write their resumes like that. So you write your resume as almost like the credits at the end of the movie. I did these 10 things. And then I went to this another company. I did these 20 things. I did this for five years. 
And so there's a reason why the credits are at the end of the movie. Because mm. they're boring. Nobody yeah. wants to like watch the credits at the beginning mm. of the movie. So why are you putting all this deep, like, don't write your job description in a resume. That is probably the number one thing. Don't make your resume your job description. A good resume does this. It is a trailer for your experience. Two, it should answer this question every line. I deserve a bonus because. So every job you go into, not what you did at the job, answer the question, I deserve a bonus because. I increased sales by X. I've had savings by Y. I led a team. I took on this new task. I translated this ambiguous challenge into this to accelerate our market share. I drove uh, incremental volume. Whatever the thing is, don't write a job description. Answer the question, I deserve a bonus because, and fill that in for every single job you've done, and your resume will stand out (laughs) larger than 90% of the people uh, that have done it. And so so that's, that's second. So first was your resume is like a trailer. Right, make it a movie trailer, make it exciting. Mm. Say the job description for somebody else. Right, I deserve a bonus because is how I'd I'd say you should uh, couch it. So answer that question for every job you've done. Uh, and this is my own. The last one is my own personal opinion of one. So this is not a tip. This is just Adrian's gripe. I personally don't like the one page resume PDF thing everybody's doing now. I get them a lot. And I've actually hired people that have the one-page uh, resume. Now, if you're in your, like, 20s, yeah, I mean, don't stretch it to be, like, two or three pages. But I'm okay if you're, like, 30, 40, and you kind of have worked and you want to, like, flesh out your experience, two pages is okay. Make it even three. I, I, it's To me, it's less about the length, more about the context and the relevancy to the role. So don't box yourself into just a one-page kind of template if you want to tell that story, it is fine um, as well. But yeah, think about it as a movie trailer. Not as important as your reputation, but I think in these days it is important to have a document because even if somebody knows you, and it, it actually, I'll tell this story. For me, every time I've gotten several jobs or promotions or whatever it is, opportunities from people who knew me already. So I didn't have to convince the person that knew me, yeah. but they also had to go to a hiring manager a CEO and this CEO or the hiring manager, the vice president of you know, HR, whoever it is, they don't know you. And so yeah. they need a credible document yeah. that communicates, you know, this is why I'm hot. That's and so right. you have responsibility to, to help, help that person who you're convincing write their victory speech for them. And so write your resume as, as if it is that victory speech for the person that's hiring you that just says, yeah, I mean, Daryl's a man. Like I, I, I worked with him before and look at this crazy good resume it's awesome. It's more than two pages. Yeah. <laughs> and it answers the question, I deserve a bonus because dot, dot, dot. All right. So I got a couple questions about resumes. Uh, number yeah. one, do you actually read them? I read resumes, but very fast. Like I, I, I'm probably one of the people that I decide based on probably the first 30 seconds if it's worth digging into as well. But you have to remember, like oftentimes by the time I get a resume, and this is just specific to me, HR or executive recruitment team is already like they've gone through two, three hundred resumes to get it down to probably 50 and of the 50. They kind of share with me maybe like 20 or maybe even 15 to just get a read. And so by the time I see it, mm. it's already been kind of pre-selected. Yeah. And so from there, yeah, I'm just looking for like, 
all right, who do we think we might want to talk to? So, yeah, yeah. I, I read. But like I said, uh, it's not me that you need to worry about. It's the the people before I get sent the resume. Yeah. Unless you're sending it to, to me directly. So it's got to work through a system. And that's that's the thing. You have to build a, a resume that's, you know, I guess process proof. And in that in that regard, you really have to make it stand out, make it relevant. One time I got it when I got the job into it, and I'd gone through like thirty interviews to get that job. It was the most rigorous interview process I had ever gone through. I remember talking to the VP of marketing who hired me, and I remember he said this. He said this wasn't why he why he hired me, but he did say this. He said, "You know what? You were the only person applying for a social media a head of global social media role." that had their social media accounts on the resume. Mm. So mm. think about that. Mm. You're applying for a social, a global social media role. Like you're going to be doing social for all these folks across a, uh, you know, a software company. You're the only candidate that had their social media accounts on the resume. So little things like that. Don't be afraid to tailor your resume. If it's a design gig, prioritize design. You know, like it's okay to like movie trailers. They have two or three different versions. It's okay to have two or three different versions of your resume to, you know, is it sales, is it marketing, is it branding um, as well? So, yeah, be, be, be flexible with it to, to tweak it based on accommodating the needs of not only the, the company, but also flexing your skills and making them relevant to that person. It's going to take maybe 30 seconds to assess it. All right. Uh, most creative resumes you have received? Ooh. Uh, Radio Shack, I was hiring and someone sent on their resume, they sent a video with it. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that was really cool to showcase your content and social media prowess by (gasps) making content in social media. It's like, so I I love that. I I do think rethinking your roles uh, and your job descriptions and Mm -hmm. that process is great. So it was a a well-crafted resume that also came with links uh, to something they created just for the role. And I did end up hiring that person. So that worked. So to that question, before you hire a person, are you looking at their social media accounts? Yes, I am. My Anybody who works with me or as any of my team members who have been with the hiring process with me will know I, yeah, I Google with the best of them. I find the blog you wrote like 10 years ago. I find that podcast you were on right after college and I listen to it. I go through all your LinkedIn, Twitter, if you're on it. Uh, yeah, I, I go through all. Actually, I do social media before I go to the resume. Okay. So if you're on LinkedIn, I do LinkedIn. Um, the resume actually becomes secondary to uh, the social media channel because I actually want to get a feel not only for like what you're posting, what you're talking about, but like your status in the industry, uh, your hobbies, just kind of get a feel for the full person. I know your, you know your resume is probably your best foot forward, but oftentimes our social media gives us a much more, sometimes a much more, I think, uh, contextual, you know, clue as to, you know, how do they, yeah. you know, treat people, right? So if your Twitter account is you, you know, griping at customer service people, you know, at American Airlines, at Papa John's Pizza, and you're, you know, cussing mm. out, mm. <laughs> you know, yeah, customer service, good. Good. or if you're just, you know, sharing like crazy, and I've had to happen before, a candidate has just shared some stuff, you're like, mm, maybe not. So, yeah, I, I look at social media a lot. Yeah. Um, okay, to that point, what should I do with my social media before I come to interview? Oh, I mean, I would advise, and especially if you're in digital. So a lot of my contacts, I hire digital, social content, or even brand marketing roles. Um, and I've hired people who are brand marketers who have minimal social media, or on Twitter, they have the little egg icon. So I've hired people that don't have a robust 
social media presence uh, because their job isn't as social media. But I would definitely scrub, do a Google search for yourself, of course. Scrub your images, think through that. Um, but see, that's defensive to me. So I, I'd say that's just like, you know, that's a defensive strategy to make sure you're like nothing crazy is out there. I would say this, especially in the pandemic, if you're looking for a job, go off, like, go offensive, go like make a blog if you don't have one and like create your identity, own your narrative. So, you know, me, I, Adrian D. Parker, if you Google Adrian Parker on Google right now, I'll show up and it's my blog. It's my information. Um, you know, I, and I, I did several versions of it, but I, I'm always wanting to own that online presence. So I'd say don't wait for them to find that thing from 20 years ago. Put something out there, like, you know, whether it's a point of view, your portfolio, mm-hmm. some writing you've done, photography. I, I'd say it's becoming increasingly important to make sure your online identity is something that's an extension of your resume. Okay, so next question. Uh, it comes from Sam, and this piggybacks on a little bit what you just said, and I'm actually going to take this one. So it says, I'd love to hear some insight from both of you about pitching yourself and an idea to a company that isn't necessarily hiring or looking for the solution or the idea that you might bring to the table. How to package it and yourself up to get your foot in the door. So I'm going to let you answer this question, but I first want to take how to package something up. So building on your resume and you know what was the most unique resume you ever received, I'm going to give a shout out to Kathleen Olstrom. I know that she's listening to this podcast, and that's part of the reason I wanted to shout her out, but also because hands down, one of the most creative resumes that I have ever received from a person in 20 years was Kathleen, and she wanted to get a job as a graphic designer. She's super talented as a graphic designer, and this is a really good uh, nugget for any of you guys who are in creative roles. Like Adrian said, you know, this person made a video. Well, Kathleen made a pinwheel. So I am That's awesome. uh, at the office one day and I get this very important package and I had to sign for it. And I grabbed this box. It's a decent sized box. It's like the size of a shoe box. And it was super light. And I was like, what in the world is this light, but is in a box this big? And so immediately I had to open it. It wasn't one of those things that just sat in my office for weeks. And so I opened it and it was a pinwheel. Like, like pinwheel, pinwheel spinning around. Look at my pinwheels. Like it was like a pinwheel, like you blow on. Right. And it was <laughs> Kathleen's resume. She That's had unique. turned yeah. her resume into a pinwheel. And number one, shout out to Kathleen for the creativity. Number two, Thoughts for anybody doing direct mail marketing still, right? Like anything that you want to get in a customer's hands, make it big enough and unavoidable to where they have to open it. I've actually done some of these where they're unboxing things, right? Unboxing's big in today, today's world for user-generated content, but it's also still big if you're like trying to get things into people's hands for sales. But Kathleen made me open that box. And the third thing was it was super creative, right? And so I called her up and I just said, hey, we are not hiring right now, but I just want you to know that this pinwheel was the most creative resume that I've ever received. And I just wanted to shout you out for that. Like, I loved it. Um, Thank you so much. And if we do decide to hire, I would love to have you come in. In fact, why don't you just come in and talk to us? So she just came in and talked to us, right? And she brought her work. And at that time we weren't hiring anybody, but her work was really good. And so it gave me an opportunity to see it one-on-one. Well, I promise you within three months, we had an opening for a new graphic designer and Kathleen was the only person I called. Like I didn't even need to go through the hiring process again because I already knew that there's a person out there that was trying to get my attention. And so to answer this question from Sam, 
I know this is a bigger question about like something that this company could do and they're not doing right now. But Kathleen was saying like, you guys need me and you don't have me right now. And so because her resume and her package was so creative, I opened it. We, she came in and we had a conversation and I knew that I wanted her, like I wanted that person being a part of our team. And in three months time we had her. And like, so I would say the takeaway for you is that if you are wanting to get in the door with a company who's not necessarily hiring for you right now, be willing to go out on a limb, put together something creative, but also don't expect a job to happen immediately from it. It's not like a magic bullet where it's just going to be like, boom, I've got this job tomorrow. But that's not to say that it doesn't pay dividends down the line. And in Kathleen's situation, it was three months later. So anyway, that was the best resume that I've ever received. That's good. No, I, I re I echo and reinforce that. I think, you know, think about every job posting is an invitation to a problem. So every job description is a company describing like an outage or an opportunity that they haven't tapped into. And when you don't have a job posting or description, it's because, A, they found a way to get around that problem or they don't have the funds or, or it's, the time's not right. And so I think like for Sam, think about this. Um one thing I totally agree with, I think, Daryl's point of view. One thing I'll share about the inner workings oftentimes of hiring is there are two separate budgets. There's the people budget, like hiring people, and that's an actual employee. Then there are the project budgets. Oftentimes, the requirements to work on a project basis only sit within a department, right? So a, a head of marketing, creative, et cetera, can own a project budget and you could you know, take on a temp job or a temporary or a contractual job way easier than trying to convince them to open up a new job and things like that. So think through, yeah, be flexible. So I think go to that pitch, be creative about how you show up, but be okay, like saying, hey, you know what, I, if, if you're able to you know, show yourself as a solution to a problem that they might have or not even be aware of, be okay like exploring an alternative arrangement where you're starting off with 20 hours a week or maybe it's a short-term project that you can get into the door. If you had that flexibility, I'm working a full-time job, obviously that gets a little tricky. But yeah, I, I definitely think be, be flexible, especially in COVID, I think post-pandemic, I think you're going to see companies start to be a little more uh, prudent and what they take on full-time versus contractual. And I think that's going to create some agenda, but I don't think it will create opportunity where uh, people who are able to see themselves as kind of like solo entrepreneurs, et cetera, or solo practitioners might be able to have some opportunities there. So I, I, I look at that as well. Well, I think that's really good. In fact, I'm having that conversation right now. I'm looking for a new role. And the one thing that I'm doing is I'm saying this person does not have to be in our office. Like anything that we've learned in this last several months is that we can do remote. Um, I do think that there needs to be connectivity for culture. But I don't think that that person has to be in our office every day. And I remember you and I having this conversation pre-pandemic, especially at an executive level, like can an executive not be in the office every day? Can we, especially in older school companies, right, who traditionally have been an in-person kind of nine to five company, everybody's mindset has shifted. And I think that we've seen that certain people that do certain things really, really well, number one, they may not need to be in the office every day. All right. And number two, they may not need to be full-time employees. I think that's a really good point on your end that like, it's much easier to spend my budget on a contracted person than it is for me to try to get approval on a new hire. 
um, especially when uh, it's things are tight right now anyway. So that's really good. That's good insight. Um, all right, next question is from Mike. Mike says, I was laid off from my current position or my previous position amidst COVID. Now I'm on the hunt for a job, but I'm struggling to get a foot in the door. Um, traditionally, I've been a team of one in my previous positions. I'm very diversified in my skill set, but I'm not specialized. This has me on paper as qualified for just entry-level positions because I lack the depth that I need. Do you have any specific feedback for me? Well, first, Mike, sorry to hear about the um, employment uh, kind of situation you're in. I, I think you know, that that's tough. Uh, and I've been there where you're in between roles or jobs and you're kind of struggling with kind of how to make, I don't make ends meet economically, but hey, what does this mean for a career long-term? So definitely um, sympathize with you as well. I think it, I'm... Part of the answer goes back to uh, the resume question, and the the part of it goes back to how do you proactively build a a career plan when you're kind of stuck at the beginning right now. So one is, I think, look at your career and skill set, maybe not as linear sequences or the chronology. I think there is a way to frame it so that it's applicable to the job. So I, and I don't have the specifics of what what job kind of you know you were looking at, but I think. Like take a fresh lens and look at, hey, is there a way to tailor my skills for this role? And it might be a combination of things. You know, hey, I put together these last three jobs and I can really surface up the way that I've led a team or I can surface up the way that I've led a project because I didn't have direct reports or budget management, et cetera. So I'd say get creative with your resume to put your best foot forward. Um, but I think, too, something I've learned, I've learned this the hard way. Is that like, what do you do when no one's looking for you? Because I think that's a key challenge of a job search is oftentimes like you're there are very few people that are doing the discovering. There's not like an American idol for your career. No one's holding this open audition like no one is looking for you. And if that's the case, you've got to like create a desire. You, you've got to create this pool. And I think the way to do that is to start, you know, if you can't get into the job you want. What is something close to it, right? Is there a way to get in the door entry level and you just hustle? I've had to do that before where, you know, I, I took a step back from a role. So, I, you know, I left when I left New York and had my own business. You know, I took a when I came back in to corporate, I took, a I guess, a title or level that was lower than where I was. And I remember kind of, you know, it was an ego thing at that time. I mean, I, you know, should have been happy to have a job because I had kind of struggled for a little bit. Um, but I remember it was an ego thing, like, man, am I taking a step back? But I hustled, you know, and I, I think, and we'll, we'll probably talk about this a little bit, you know, I was told, I asked for the job. So I asked for the higher uh, level, and I was told, hey, you don't have the experience of some of these other people, and oh, hey, you don't have your MBA like some of the other directors. Um, a year later, I was sitting across the table, and I was getting that promotion, and I didn't just get the title. Obviously, I got the per- the promotion and the economic bump with it. But I think you got to get in where you can. If there are times in your life, especially a pandemic, you might just get in at that ground level and just have a plan for yourself to really work hard, focus, you know, for a year and try to get in where you can. So work hard uh, and spend a lot of time learning, learn the industry, relearn that company that you're applying for. So I think don't be afraid to take a step back if you have to in title or even in, in pay if it doesn't put you you know, upside down in some key areas, because I think your hustle and your experience will, will start to bear fruit longer term. So it is a risk, but you're not risking it all. Yeah, I think 
to add to what you said right there, if you've done a lot of things, but they haven't been super deep, um, maybe you haven't led a team on a super high level, but you've done a lot of things. What I would say is that you become more valuable and you don't even necessarily know that yet. So a lot of times when you and I are looking to hire somebody, I want somebody that's got multiple skill sets, right? Like I'm very seldom looking for somebody that's super specialized in one area. I want somebody that can do a little bit of everything and that is always learning and growing, always self-educating, always pushing to be better in whatever space that they're working in in that moment. And so I would ask you, is there a way to package that all that stuff up that you've learned, going back to your first tip of like making your resume really interesting. Like, is it a video? (laughs) Is it a pinwheel? You know, is it something that's so unavoidable and get that out there? And and the truth is, is that you may have to get that out there a hundred times to get 10 interviews in the current world. You know, how many, by the way, how many people are you interviewing for roles right now? Like if I, if you've got a entry to mid-level role, how many people are you interviewing? Oh gosh. I mean, actual interview less than 10. It's probably five or six because we've probably narrowed it down to the point where a time is valuable. But at that point, you know, um, yeah, you it, you start to get very judicious about who you bring in and very deliberate uh, around it. So, yeah, I mean, you might get, you know, like I said before, from two, three hundred resumes that might apply for a role or even more now. I mean, it's a you know, it's you know, it's a very small percentage that are actually getting the chance to even talk about the role. And a lot of you know roles are referral based, and so you know you apply, you didn't even really have a chance. I, and I benefited from that. I've I've had jobs that I've been called for it, and so and you've had the same thing where you know like so uh, that's just kind of the way it works. You know, it's not necessarily who you know, but who knows you. And so that ability, if you don't have someone pulling for you, right? I think we talked about this early, uh, Daryl. I think before this podcast was early in your career, you've got to create. That desire, there's this push you got to do. You got to push yourself into opportunities. I think once you get some reputation and some wins, there will be a time in your life. I see for Mike or anybody that's listening, there will there will be a time when you know you've somebody's talking about you in a room where you're not there, and they're uh, lobbying for you to have a role or a project or an opportunity, and that's where that reputation so outweighs the the, the resume, but the reputation becomes the calling card, and that's when you get the call, and it's just like. Hey, like, when can you start? And th- those, those are the best conversations. <laughs> yeah, no, that's so good. The the guy out there right now that doesn't have a job, uh, the girl out there right now that's looking for new work, and they're saying, but I don't have that advantage. I, I want to go work for this company, and I don't know anybody there, but I want to go to that space. What do I do? I would say do your homework. So there's plenty of time in LinkedIn and Google that you can find out who's at this company, right? And who's maybe going to be your future boss or a person within that department of the organization that you want to be in. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with reaching out to them via LinkedIn, DMing them through Instagram, like find a way to get to that person. Like if you really want to be in this space, figure out a way to get in front of them. Um, man, it's so funny. Like I often think about the, the men who tore apart the roof to get their brother who was crippled in front of Jesus, right? Like they wanted, they knew that if they could just get him in front of them, right? Like they couldn't get through the crowd. They couldn't get through the door. So they ripped the roof off. And I think that's the way that I just approach life. I'm going to get in that space somehow. Like I'm going to find my way into that space if that's really where I want to be. If you, I, And I'll tell you this. 
if you're not willing to tear the roof off, you don't really want to be in that space. You just want to say that you can't find a job. You just want to say that nobody likes you. You just want to say that the economy is bad, that nobody's hiring. But have you ripped the roof off? Have you done everything? Have you made a pinwheel? Have you DM'd somebody? Have you reached out via LinkedIn? Have you found email addresses? Have you knocked on the door, right? Like if you haven't done those things, don't talk to me. That's Rip good. the roof off, man, yeah. if you really want to be out there in that space. Yeah, one thing I'd say, especially for uh, recent college grads, and it's it's so hard to come out of college with a degree because you're competing against people who have, might have been downsized or laid off, so they have more experience than you already. The economic disadvantage, you know, you got people who are, might be more experienced who are willing to work at your salary level. So I've had a couple calls with uh, college students college graduates who, you know, they're struggling. And I think one thing I'd say this, because the landscape has changed so drastically, you don't have to ask for permission. Like, go start start your business or your side hustle. Um, even if it's small, start to move in that direction. It's so much easier for people to uh, find you when you're already doing the work that they're looking for. Right? right? So when That's you're just right. sitting there, and, and like I said, I've been on the job hunt before, so I'm not like... Um, minimizing what it takes to, you know, do calls and sign out your resume, but like start doing the work small. Like if you're volunteering for like an organization, hey, you know what? Let me start writing your press releases. Let me start to like, hey, let me do a new sales kit for you. Let me start to put that in my portfolio. Like start doing the work. It's much easier to be discovered when you're doing versus when you're waiting. So don't ask for permission. Start to take on some of those things, even if you're not getting paid, to be honest. I've done some unpaid stuff before, too, early in my career. I'm married, so I guess that's called unpaid. Oh, hold on. Is Alicia (laughs) listening? Oh, well. Anyway. (laughs) And that's another subject. (laughs) But it's true, because a body in motion tends to stay in motion, right? So the inverse of that is true. When you're sedimentary, you tend to stay sedimentary. So you're absolutely right. Get in motion, stay in motion. And the other thing is get more reps. Like you can always use more reps. I think that's even back to the early conversations about interviews. If you view interviews as practice, right, you're just getting more reps. So get more reps. And early in your career, you're going to need more reps. So get the reps. Next question comes from Susie. She says, should I get my master's? Um, and then also, how do you make a major career shift? Now, you and I have both had this master's conversation. We have <laughs> exhausted this conversation interpersonally. So I'm going to let you go first, and then oh, I'm going to jump in. Yeah, no. A, I'd say this, and I have you know friends and family that have master's degrees, and they're on it, like killing it. For me, it the master's is um, a tool, and if it gets if this tool takes you to the town that you're headed towards, and it's necessary. Great. And it makes sense from an ROI perspective. But if the tool is expensive, I don't think you need to put premium gas in a Honda to get to the same destination. And so I think if you need the premium gas, a.k.a. the masters to get somewhere or to learn something, it could be interest based. Right. Not even for career advancement. I know people that have masters because they want to learn something. That's great. Education is awesome. But I think. The trick is this, and and I've been there before, where you feel this almost imposter syndrome, where, hey, a lot of my peers have a master's. I remember, especially early in my 30s, uh, I'll be at conferences. And so I've been invited to speak on panels and conferences, and like I would open the brochure, and I and it was my own insecurity. I always would look at the speaker's education first. 
So I skipped companies, bio, background, and at the end, I'd always see who had an MBA and who didn't because it was my own insecurity. So I felt the imposter syndrome, right? Oh, man, they're smart. They work for this great company. Oh, man, he has an MBA and it's Ivy League, Harvard here, here, you know. And so I had my own thing. So I remember when I was, uh, I told somebody this story recently, uh, when I was um, at Radio Shack, I, w- I had started the MBA process. So I had gone to a couple schools. I had started the application process. I had started to get uh, references. And I'd, I had scheduled some time to, you know, take the GRE. No, it was a GMAT. GMAT, right? So I was going. Like, I was. I need this MBA to get to that next level. And I remember a job came across. And I remember thinking, oh, man, that job would be great. But I won't be, I'll get that job after I get my MBA. I remember getting a call about a role two weeks later, and it was the job that I thought I could get into it, actually. It was online. I think somebody recommended me for the job. Somebody who had an MBA <laughs> recommended me for the job who didn't have it because they needed a different kind of person. And so ended up that, you know, this two-year uh, break I would have taken to get an MBA, I ended up being able to go to a company and work for two years and get much better experience. So for me... I think recognize the motivation behind the MBA or the master's degree. So if it's if it's something you need, premium gas to get, if it's a requirement or something, great. Um, but don't do it because you feel like you're less than. Uh, don't do it because you feel like uh, you need that credential to be in the room. I think oftentimes so many things are changing. There's informal ways to get education. So when I started my business, I did a three-month uh, entrepreneurship course at SMU. It cost a fraction of what... Uh, SMU MBA. I mean, a fraction of so you know it's a crash course. Get certified. Seek education always, but I don't think you uh, have to get the the masters at every turn if it is something that you can kind of piece together on your own. So I don't know. No, what, what's your yeah. take, DC? Well, for me, there was this moment where I thought, for me to get to the next level in my career, yeah. I need to get my masters, or specifically, it would have been the masters of fine art at that point because I was headed down the the art director track. And what I came to realize was is that people were more interested in what I could create as opposed to what I could prove that I could learn. And so as I got farther and farther along, you realized that like the masters isn't as important as my reputation, as my portfolio, as all the work that's behind me. And so back to the beginning of this conversation, I've been asked to teach at universities twice based on reputation and work portfolio. I was not asked to teach because of my master's. Now, you might be saying like, hey, you know, will you, if you want to be a professor or you want to be a, a counselor or you want to work in, you know, at a certain level that you have to have it. Yeah, there's, you're absolutely right. There's certain occupations where, you know, having your master's in counseling is very important. My sister-in-law is a great example of that, right? She has her master's in counseling so that she can, you know, help these students. It's a requirement by the state in a lot of times. But like for me as a creative, like getting my master's of fine arts didn't make me any better at art. It didn't make me a better creative. It just proved that I could learn something in a university setting. And you and I talked about this last time. That is judging you based on a grading scale, right? But in the real world, man, it's ones and zeros. In the real world, it's either you do or you don't. And that master's, man, 
I got to be honest, I've earned it 10 times over in the real world by starting companies, by failing at things, um, by just putting myself in a position where I was actually executing the things that you guys are studying in school. But I can tell you straight up right now, as a creative, I don't think you need it. Yeah, that's good. And I think specifically for uh, kind of Susie's question, because for her, it was a question of, hey, do I need this master's to make a pivot? I think, you know, if it's a requirement, you know, I think of the craft or the practice, I think you, you could weigh that. But oftentimes, don't discount the experience you already have. Think about it. Like, so if you've got experience in brand or marketing or sales, that gives you a unique perspective. And so I think there might be this way to tailor that experience yeah. and get some on-the-job training, uh, either via a, a actual a stretch project that you can take on. At, at your company and just asking for it, right? Laying out a plan, asking for it officially uh, with the boss or higher up, or taking on a series of projects that let you confirm that you're interested in it, right? So to take on some things that, that start to give you some of that experience as well. So I, I think when it comes to some of the more um, knowledge work, like call it uh, like or, org design, uh, there are people that have, you know, I know people with PhDs actually who are doing, but I, I think in this case, like, some of the industry expertise actually is such a winning benefit that, you know, you might be able to forego that, that piece. And also think about your company. You get at the right company that values mobility and lets you move around and try things. Oh, I mean, that, that, that's worth, like I said, me at Intuit, I ended up learning way more than I would have if I had taken two years out. So also assess, is this a company where I could learn that in a way that it is a creative and beneficial to me. And you might look at, hey, here's a company or a business move that positions me to learn this uh, in a way that my, my former employer just wouldn't have sponsored or wouldn't have supported. So I, I, I definitely would think about that in a number of different ways. Okay, last question then. Um, what if you've been at a company for a number of years, right? And you want to change or move up the ranks, like change jobs uh, within the company. Um, how do you do that? How do you change roles within the company? And maybe those roles do or don't exist. I think one of the most uh, overlooked um, tools of career planning and changing is a simple word called ask. Hmm. You would be surprised how many people don't even ask for the opportunity. Literally just ask, ask, hey, what could my path be? Um, because at the moment you ask and engage your boss or a member of HR or yep. the organization, it yep. allows them to like take on that with you. So they become your champion. And so ask in a way where um, not only does it engage them, but it lets them be your consultants and your kind of coaches. I mean, most people, myself included, a good manager or a good boss, A, should be one you trust. And if you don't trust your yeah. boss or manager, then... That's a whole other podcast, but you should probably yeah. not be there in the first place. But if you trust them, I think, yeah, go to them. Ask them, hey, you know what? I have an interest. I'd like to lay out this out. It could be over a couple year time frame, but I think ask for the opportunities to shift. But also, um, I think about this too, and this is something we hadn't touched on explicitly, but I've seen people get um, kind of boxed in. Don't get landlocked by your lifestyle. Like, Don't um, box yourself in economically to where you have to make a certain amount of money. And now all your career decisions are based on protecting income. I think you will reach a point 
where, especially if you're looking at organizational changes or career pivots, where, hey, I might need to take a, a step back for a period of time to be able to move laterally. Or, you know what, I'm going to relocate and the cost of living is so different. Like, And so I, I think don't get so boxed into living at your lifestyle level that you can't uh, you know, take money out of a situation at times. Now, there, for, you know, if you're living in New York or San Fran, things like that, it's hard. You know, with kids, and so I get it. I'm, I'm not saying that um, you know, you shouldn't have an economic model uh, and know your worth and your market price. That's not that. But if you know you do have a career pivot or a career transformation taking place, that it 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 it, it can um it can alleviate some of the stress by having some financial flexibility that allows you to, hey, I can move to a smaller market. Hey, I can take like a $30,000 a year pay cut for a few years just to get this experience as well. So don't get landlocked by, by your lifestyle is something that I think I've seen happen a lot. Actually, it's kind of the default for a yeah. lot of our decisions. Yeah, <laughs> That's a great point. I think you got at the root of it. A lot of yeah. people are not asking a career question. They're asking a financial question. How do I make more? How do I get more? Yep. Okay. Um, last thought from me and kind of like this line of questioning. Um, it came from uh, coffee a couple weeks ago I had with a young man and he was trying to make a decision on how to change careers, how to move jobs, like how to handle it. And I just told him that early, the earlier you understand this, the earlier you grab onto the idea of what do I want. Right. The earlier you grab on to what do I want, you've got to realize that that nobody else in your life is responsible for that answer. You've got to figure out a way to get that answer downloaded to you in such a clear and concise way that's not mixed with ego, that's not mixed with money. Like you've got to be able to say, like, hey, what is it exactly that I want? And the earlier that you can do that in your career, the better off you are because nobody else is going to be responsible for your happiness. Like it just comes down to you. That's good. And so yeah. the earlier you can say, hey, I'm I'm going to own my own happiness in my work and in my career, and I'm not going to give that control to anybody else. The faster you're going to get to the point where you're like, this is what I really want to do. And the faster you get to what you really want to do, the more you're just going to enjoy your life. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, I think um, oftentimes we never take a step back and look at the flight plan. You know, we start headed off, you know, we, we, we get our wings, we get in the air and it, we're off. And we never take a you know a second to look at, oh, is this the plan I need to be on? And I've been there where you're like, oh, this is you know a path and I'm being pushed away. And it could be like friends, family, your skill set, whatever it is, right? For any number of good reasons, you can say yes to good things. But I think uh, always t- having that moment to check your coordinates and say, hey, am I headed in a direction that is true to me? And is it true to why I'm here? Is it true to who I'm serving? I think that's a question that oftentimes we don't ask and be okay knowing that it, it could change over your life. I think uh, it'll evolve. Like you'll have different destinations. I always, I've often thought about my career as just a series of roles, like an actor taking on, you know, Hey, I'm, this is a role I'm going to play, whether it's on a, a movie or a sitcom, whatever. And then, Hey, here's another role I'll play. And so, um, and I think that collection, that body of work, it's okay to like try different things. And if, Hey, this one didn't work out. Okay. I'll, I'll find another one. But, uh, yeah, I think, but that kind of approach can only come if you have some kind of confidence in why you're here, who you are, but also, Hey, where do you fit? Yeah. And the other thing is, is that you changing those job roles didn't change intrinsically who AP is as a person. Exactly. 
Yeah. Right. Like you, your identity is much bigger than just the company that I'm working for or what my email address is. Right. And I think the earlier you understand that, the better you're going to sleep at night. That's big. Um, and the more excited you'll be to wake up the next day because your happiness and joy isn't dependent upon what you, what company you're working for. You know, if you figured out what it is that I want and the direction that I'm headed and who I am and just because maybe your job isn't quote unquote the dream job in that moment, like you're fully satisfied. Yeah, man. That's a sermon. We have to start passing an offering plate around this podcast, man. Okay. So we've talked a lot tonight about how to get a job, but there's the question on the table about what if I'm leaving a job? So how do I leave well, AP? Ooh, leaving well is important because the way you leave a job not only determines how the person after you comes in, but also it says something about the people who were with you, your team. And so, like I said, your reputation is bigger than your resume. A very big indicator of reputation is how you leave a job. And so what I highly advise is leave nothing to chance. I'd say, you know, if you have the opportunity to give more than two weeks notice, do that. But obviously, you know, be ready to walk out the second you you acknowledge your, your resignation. But I think go above and beyond to meet the needs not only of the manager, but of the team. And so a good example for me when I left Radio Shack, right? And I work with people you know, who are still my friends. And actually the management team at Radio Shack, like the guy, the VP, CMO actually hired me again at Patron. So if I had left wrong mm-hmm. like i would have burned that bridge yeah and so a i found not only did i find a temp uh uh professional resource from an agency to help fill my role i put together a project list of everything i was working on i made sure every project i worked on had an owner and i helped find the person that had my job after me so not only did i find the temporary filler i actually helped recruit the person that ultimately uh ended up taking the role after me. So, I mean, that's a case study and how to do it. I'd say, you know, different, you know, situations happen, but make sure you over communicate, give them notice, uh, as much time as possible, but Hey, there's no surprises, no dead ends. Like, you know, like wrap it up in a way where if you were walking into that job as the person after you, you know, would you have the files, the access you need? Would you have things documented, uh, like you would, but also, Hey, like, you know, do a proper handoff so that they can, you know, support and continue the work that you started as well. That's good. And I would say don't burn any bridges, leave all doors open. So thank you so much. This has been such a good experience or maybe it hasn't been a good experience. Maybe it's been the worst experience ever, but how do you leave graciously? Hey, thank you so much that we were able to spend time together. Um, I'm grateful that we got to do that. Uh, this is where I'm going. This is where you can find me in the future. Uh, if you ever need help, or maybe you have questions about things that I did while I was here, I'll be happy to answer those. You know, like I, I think leaving doors open and bridges unburned is really a best practice because you never know in the future, like you said, what's, what's going to happen, who's going to be where. Um, again, your reputation is more important than your resume. I think that's the big takeaway from tonight. So do not burn those bridges when you walk out the door. Um, and the best way to do that is just with grace. And I think yeah. we, we all kind of know what that looks like. We may not be able to describe it in this moment, but grace looks like, um, doing it well. And, uh, walking out with a smile and a handshake instead of a middle finger in the air. (laughs) (laughs) 
Even though you might feel justified. Yeah. Exactly. It ain't worth it. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So we always do this before we get done. Give me some stuff that I should be reading right now to give me new thought so I can unfollow the old ways. Oh, yeah. Okay. So first book, book called Called to Create. Called to Create by Jordan Rayner. Um, Hey, he's great on Instagram. So follow him. I think it's this at Jordan Rayner. Uh, it's just a good book about, you know, it's like a biblical invitation to just be creative. You know, the original entrepreneur was God. Like, he he was innovative. He created. And I think this book argues that we're all um, embedded with this, this gene of creation, no matter what we are. And so being okay, like, you know, not viewing your career as just a job, but viewing it as, uh, you know, a vocation, a calling. So it's a, a great book. Like I said, for not only uh, looking at your career, but what we just talked about, looking at your life. Like oftentimes we talk about a job, but it's like, what, what should my life look like is, is a question you, you really want to be able to answer. And then uh, second book, I would highly recommend and forgive the title, especially if, if you're a co-worker of mine. I, I'm just saying it's a good book. The, the, the title can be alarming. I do hide. I hide the title in the cover <laughs> when I'm flying because I don't want people to freak out. But. It's called uh, Dream Year. Make the leap from a job you hate to a life you love. <laughs> Dream Year by Ben Arment. It's amazing. It is really, and it's less about leaving a job. It's actually about leaving a lifestyle or a way of working that doesn't work for you. And so, like, why are you, and so COVID has taught all of us, like, man, like, why, why, why sit in status quo? And so it's a great year, a great book. It really does give you kind of a kind of month by month guide on how to think through like, hey, what's most important? So it really is just more of a good like life reset book um, as well. And then lastly, there's a book. Um, it's actually very similar. It's called When to Jump by Mike Lewis, When to Jump. Um, and it's all it's all stories. So it's literally just a book of stories of people who have made shifts in their career. So I don't know, an NFL athlete who became a stockbroker, a teacher who became a screenwriter, a blockbuster video store manager who became an Academy Award winning director. I mean, literally, I love it because um, Mike Lewis, he's not necessarily preaching or teaching. He's actually letting actual people tell their stories of how they shifted uh, careers. It also gives you a good um, snapshot into how what it feels like. Like, hey, I want to be a writer, so... Yeah, I, I didn't make any money for two years or I took freelance gigs or, you know, I had to work two jobs for a little bit. So, so it's a great, uh, useful collection of actual stories of people who have uh, not only gotten jobs and made shifts in their career, but also made shifts in their life. So those are three good reads I'd recommend for anybody that's kind of assessing, hey, what I want to do, but also want stories and inspiration for how to get it done. Uh, mine is Chris Voss, Never Split the Difference. And if you know me, you get tired of hearing about this book. But here's how it plays into getting a job. The principle that Chris talks about is mirroring. And that is asking the person a question based on what they just told you. It's usually like repeating the last three or four important words back to them with a question mark at the end in a voice that's kind of like a he calls it like a nighttime DJ voice. And what happens is, is that that person has this automatic response to that. And that's to answer the question. And when you're answering questions, you feel like you're more understood. It's crazy. So often in this interview, the person 
you walk away from says, man, I just really love that Adrian guy. Like he just, he's just so nice. <laughs> and he was really interested in me, you know, like you feel understood. And all that you really did was use this tactic of mirroring. And it's so good because it helps you to uncover new things. So you may be going into this interview, like you said earlier, with like this mindset of like, I am going to tell them why this job is great for me. But really, you should be going in with this idea of like, I'm going to sit and ask questions based on some of the feedback that I'm getting from my interviewee or interviewer. And so that I, as an interviewee, will respond in a way that lets them know that I'm very interested and I want to learn more. And I think something that I love about people is when they want to learn more, it teaches me that, man, this is a curious person and curiosity is really something that leads to future growth. So again, for me, it's Chris Voss, never split the difference. That's awesome, man. Well, I hope this uh, episode has been helpful. Obviously we, we uh, touched on, we, we went like touched on a ton of different topics, but hope it was valuable um, as well. So continue to drop us a DM on our uh, Instagram page, unfollow underscore podcast. We'd love to continue getting you know, questions or inputs and anything that you know we can answer even off podcast, uh, off air is perfectly fine. Uh, if you're liking what you hear, feel free to subscribe, share it with your friends and family as well, and give us a review on um, Apple iTunes as well as we start to look at what season or our, our break. So we're taking a break. Last episode, this one, 13, done. Then let's start working on our kind of micro uh, episodes in the future. Let us know what you want to hear. What do you have questions on? Uh, what do you want to challenge on? Let's put Daryl on the hot seat. Uh, whatever we got to do. But yeah, I, I thank all you guys for riding with us for 13 uh, crazy episodes. And thank you, Lord Alfred Brown, for the amazing music track that uh, you so generously have produced for us that has allowed us to upgrade our game. And of course, last thanks to the man, the legend, Daryl CrossFit Coffee for bringing all this together. He is getting it done like it's a deadlift. OMG. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nah, man, that was great. Love you and talk to you soon. All right, peace. Hey guys, this is DC, and this was the Unfollow Podcast. We hope you like what you heard today. And if you didn't, that's okay. There's 100,000 other podcasts you can choose to subscribe to. But if you like this one, do us a favor and subscribe or share it with a friend.